We have been going through the book of Genesis, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and it's been quite exciting seeing all these different stories, all these different uh, accounts of God's amazing love. Some people think, and it still blows my mind, and I still hear it, I even read commentaries that say the, the vicious and mean God of the Old Testament, here he shows up again, and over here, and he's raining fire over here, and flooding people over here, but I think you would agree with me that as we have been studying, we have seen a much different picture in the actual Word of God, a, a God that's full of love, boundless compassion, unending mercy, and he's constantly going after the people who he has chosen. He loves them, he calls them, and he works in their life. And so it's been really a blessing as we've been tackling the book of Genesis. Well, today we are beginning in chapter 19, verse 27, and we'll be going through verse 38. And the title of today's message is called, The Flesh Farmer. The Flesh Farmer. It'll make sense at the end. So let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we come to you. We are so in need of your great love and your great mercy. Lord, we repent of all of our self-sufficiency and we come boldly to your throne of grace where we can find help in time of need. Lord, little do we know that every moment is a time of need for us. Every second, every breath is a gift from you. It's a a part of grace. And Lord God, we pray that you would work in our hearts to bring freedom, to bring truth. Lord God, I just pray that our church would abide under the shadow of your wing today, that all of us here would seek you with all our heart, that as your eyes go to and fro throughout this world and you look for those whose hearts are loyal towards you, God, that your, your, your gaze would settle here on us. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to pour out your grace, your ability, your power, your everything. Give it to us, Father. We're not trying to earn it, but we ask for it in faith. And in humility, Lord, we seek it out. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Your life matters. On the paper, if you guys received that paper, there's a little box on the, on the paper that's the anchor deep page that has the notes. There's a box there, and if you have that, or if you have another piece of paper, or a pencil, uh, or you know, just something on your Bible, I want you to write down the name of someone who your life matters to. Who does your life matter to? Hopefully, it matters to your spouse if you're married. But in your heart, who do you really think your life matters to? Maybe it doesn't even matter to you what you do every day. But it surely matters to the people around you. Your children, your family, your friends, they all care about you. And it really matters to God. Your life does matter to God. He records every day, every deed, every thought, every emotion. He cares. He writes them down in his books. And he will reward 
and He will punish. That's how it's going to work. What you do matters. But here's the crazy part. You can't just do things for God and expect that that's going to work. You can't just give yourself a list of things that are good and follow it even 90% of the time. It's even more about how and why you do things than what you actually do. The motives, the heart behind it, or you could say the source. Where were your works sourced? Your life, what, what you did in your life. Jesus says you have to, have to actually be a good person, or what we would call truly spiritual, in order to be rewarded. You have to build with, as we saw last week, the, the precious stones and not the wood, hay, and stubble of self-effort. And that only happens by grace. God makes us new by work of His Spirit. His Spirit, that's, that's what being spiritual is. A work of His Spirit, born and living by the Spirit, is how these good works happen. we got people serving over at the church right now. And I don't know, honestly, how they're serving from their heart. Are they doing it because they're trying to earn their way with God? Or are they doing it out of a truly spiritual heart? There's two ways that we call that. The truly spiritual man, and then you could call it the faker. You could call it the poser. You could call it the legalistic man. And I don't mean to offend when I say legalistic. I mean it's someone who is attempting by keeping the rules to actually be what the spiritual man is without even trying. The spiritual man has just been made a godly man. He follows Christ and God's Christ's spirit has entered him and his desires are now sanctified. His will is now lining up with God and the one who's just attempting to do that on his own is not. If you're trying to be good in your own efforts, you are a flesh farmer. A flesh farmer is what I'm going to call it today. No one's ever said that term before. I made it up. <laughs> Just for today. And if you're trying, if you're not trying to be good, let me start that over. If you're not even trying to be good at all, you're still a flesh farmer. There's two sides. You're either licentious, meaning you just give yourself a license to do whatever you want, that's sowing to your flesh, that's being a flesh farmer. If you are trying to do it by the rules, you're also a flesh farmer doing your efforts trying to keep the rules. Both of them sowing to your flesh, both sides. We read in Galatians chapter 7, we're going to start, I'm going to read this to you just because it's given us a pretext to our study that we're going to have today. It says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh, flesh farmer, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And in our story, we are going to have two men that we've been studying and we're, we're looking at today again. Abraham, he is a man who right now is living by the Spirit. His heart has been changed. He loves God. And it's affected his actions. His actions are no longer just bound up in what he can do, what he can, he's just 
learned about God's sacrifice. He trusts God. He believes in God's word. He's living by the Spirit. And then we have Lot. And Lot is a picture of a believer who is living by the flesh. It's kind of like the draft in in NFL. You have these things that they measure when you go to the combine. And, And certain guys do really good with the measurables. Their strength. And I want you to think about Lot when you think about those guys. Guys who just... Man, they, when they jump, they jump this high, and it's really good. When they push up those bars, they can do it this many times, and it, it, it outperforms other people. And those are the efforts of the flesh, okay? But then you have those guys that, that may not perform quite as good, but, but everyone says, man, they just have the intangibles. They just have the heart. They just seem to succeed. <clears throat> Tebow. But, Sorry. <laughs> I loved Tebow. He was awesome. Anyway. Yay, Tebow. That's right. <laughs> She's my Tebow buddy. Those two are the two ways of looking at things. Either they perform with their flesh, they perform with their efforts, or they just have a heart. They have immeasurable something, and that's the spirit. Who can measure the spirit? Who can measure how much spirit you have or you have or I have? We can't. We can't see those. They're invisible to us. And as we see, Abraham, he's got this spirit about him. And Lot, he's got the efforts. He's got, he's been living by his own abilities. And we're going to see what, how this all relates to grace. How does this relate to grace? Well, Jesus came to save us and make a way for us to receive the spirit of God into our hearts. Our flesh can't come into his presence There's a major gulf between us and God. Only he can bridge that gulf by his spirit through grace. It's his work and not ours. In other words, none of us said, I'm good enough to be saved. None of us said, I'm good enough for you to give me your spirit. No, but we we asked for it in simple humility and faith. And he said, I will give you my spirit. Only one person ever earned the Spirit. And who was that? Jesus, right? Remember when he's getting baptized? And the Father says, This is my Son, and you I am well pleased. And he opened up heaven, and the Spirit came down. He's like, You just get my Spirit because of how well you've done. Well, we don't get that, though. But we can be a Spirit farmer. A Spirit farmer. One who lets, by humility and faith, the Spirit plant and grow and produce fruit in their heart. So let's start now in verse 27 in Genesis chapter 9. With that as our introduction, as we understand the difference between the spirit and the flesh and those two ways of going, we now see Abraham and that he went, verse 27, early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Abraham, this man of the Spirit, he has a daily connection with the Lord, and it's spiritual. It's invisible. Starting the day with an attitude of, I need you. I'm on this team, and I need to hear from my coach. The world thinks that you're crazy for spending time with an invisible friend every morning. Maybe your own mind 
And your reason tell you that this doesn't matter for me to spend a few minutes with an invisible friend. But your soul will taste and drink deeply of the life of heaven when we feast on God's word and listen for his real voice in our hearts. That's what happens. Is our soul, those intangibles, are being communicated into our heart. Because sometimes we need to speak to the Lord. In Psalm 5.3, it says, My voice you shall hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. God does, we do need to lift our voice to him because there's things in our heart. And we can take him to our friends, we can speak to them, we can talk to ourselves, but bring him to the Lord is vital in our relationship, in our connection with him. And then sometimes we just need to listen to the Lord. In Hebrews 2.1, it says, I will stand, or, I'm sorry, Habakkuk 2.1, it says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the ramparts and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. We need to hear the Lord's voice just as, we need to, as much as we need to speak to him. Once you have heard it, nothing else can satisfy your soul, right? And I know that many of you have tasted and seen of that voice in your heart and in your soul and nothing else will ever replace it. Even if what he says is correction. Even if he says, you screwed up yesterday. You messed up. But my child, I love you. So, because... The reason why even correction is good in the morning for us to hear is because we know that we're his children when we see, when we receive correction. He corrects those who he loves and he disciplines those who are his true children, right? So the fact that we receive correction in the morning isn't something we need to run away from, it's something we need to draw into because our hearts long to wander away. We just drift away. Hebrews 2, 1, it says, Therefore, we must give a more earnest heed to those things which we have heard, lest we drift away. So Abraham here, he's developing, he's, he's demonstrating for us a daily time in humility and faith with Jesus to be the anchor to our soul. It's, it's a, the band that keeps our branch grafted to the tree. It's the pure food to our starving souls. It's the refreshing water to our dry and weary hearts. We must listen to him daily. It's not a law, though. It's a life. It's not a requirement. It's the only straw of air leading us, giving us air when we're at the bottom of the sea. It's life. It's our connection to life. And an abiding relationship with Jesus is made up of many small times just added together. Many small times of faith where you're really saying, I trust your word. I open up your Bible because I actually believe that the words in here are true. And that's a small step of faith. And so your faith grows every time you open up the Bible. And then it's many small steps of humility saying, I need your word. I'm not sufficient. I need something from you, God. I need your spirit. That's why we see humility and faith in a daily time with Jesus. 
If we abide, we will see God's power displayed in our life. In John 15, 7, it says, If you abide in me, like Abraham is doing here, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Oh, there's the dangerous promise. The reckless Jesus giving us a wild and untamed promise. When you are connected with Jesus in that way daily, understand that your prayers are as sure as he is. Why? Because you have his heart developed over time through patience and suffering. You've gained his heart, his spirit now is in you. And now you're, the things that make him bleed make you bleed. The things that break his heart break your heart. And because you're hearing his voice, you know and can depend on his love and character. Because when you're reading the word, his voice starts to become clear to you. That's how it works. Abraham, he's about to see his prayers have been answered. That's what we're seeing here. His prayers have affected the world. His prayers have meant the salvation of a human being, his nephew Lot. Pray for the lost. Spend time with Jesus every day and pray for the lost. That's the strategy of our church. That's the should be the strategy of all the church in the world. Be connected with Jesus and then pray. Well, what about this strategy? And what about that event? And yeah, all those can be used, but none of them will work at all unless we have those two things. Connecting with Jesus and praying. Pray for those in your life that don't know God. Pray for those who are saved, but they're living in Sodom. Verse 28, then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, he's spending time with Jesus. All of a sudden he looks toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of all the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So it says here that God Save Lot because he remembered Abraham. Remember, the beginning of chapter 19 was Abraham praying, pleading for his nephew. And then being blown away by God's promise and God's character of love and salvation. And so, as he has done this, it worked. So I have a question for you. Did God save Lot because Abraham prayed or because of Lot's faith? And that's a really good question. Because in the New Testament, we understand Lot was a righteous man. And from the Bible and all of the context, we understand that righteousness comes by faith. But here we see God saved him out of the situation he was in because of Abraham's prayers. Would Lot have perished in the fires of Sodom if Abraham hadn't interceded for him? We don't know exactly the answer to that question because God uses people's prayers and faith to save other people. That's his sovereign choice, to allow us to be involved in his plan of salvation in the world. Doesn't he choose who gets saved and accomplishes their salvation on his own? 
What we see in the Bible is that he has chosen the way of salvation and we are given a huge part to play in that plan of salvation with him. He partners with us with his will, with his strength, with his sovereignty. And this is the greatest part, maybe the scariest part. He will wait until we pray. He will wait until we ask for someone's soul, for someone's life. He will wait until we believe in our hearts that our request is heard and that He will answer. He will wait. We need to wake up to the fact that the world is dying and going to hell because we are not praying. As the church, as a whole. Not because our teaching is boring. Not because we aren't involved with government. Not because we're not talented enough and not because we don't have the right strategies. And it's not because we don't have the abilities or the resources or the answers. It's because God waits until our hearts believe. And that's why he gave us the parable of the unjust judge. And he has us come again and again and again. Not because he needs to be convinced. No, he's so loving and he's so good. He is ordained an answer to your prayers. But he will wait until your heart is fully convinced of his goodness. He will wait. And he will continue to mold and form and draw faithfulness. And he'll allow doubts to come. And then he'll say, do you believe in me? Look at my word. Come back to my word. See my faithfulness. Do you believe that I'll answer your prayer? Do you believe? Do you believe in me? Do you believe? Because our hearts doubt God's willingness to answer prayer. And I don't care how faithful you are. I don't care how much you've known God. There are still tiny little areas of darkness in your heart that don't yet believe fully. Because we are in the flesh. We are not dead yet. We're not perfect yet. And so our hearts have to learn obedience through the things we suffer. We have to learn to wait upon the Lord. To see his power. But many of us give up. We pray for something. God, this must be your will for my mom to get saved, for this person to get out of their life of sin, dominated sin. You, you must want that. And so I pray for it once. I may even pray for it twice. But after that, God, if you don't hear me, I'm taking my ball and going home. And God said, I want to answer you. But I need a full heart to be able to work with. I want to answer you. Abraham, living by a life of faith, his prayers worked. They were answered. Lot was rescued. Now we shift our attention to Lot. We shift our gaze to what he's going through. Because again, he was a believer, but as we saw last week, he completely wasted his life. He wasted his ministry the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are dead and he could have saved some, but because he was compromising, because he was trying to do things out of his flesh 
And because he was just telling them to change without introducing them to God, those three ways he wasted his life. That's what we studied last week. And today we're going to see Lot's consequences. What happens to the flesh farmer? We, again, I'm going to read Galatians 6 again to you so that we have it fresh in our mind as we tackle this part of the Scriptures. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Lot is saved, but he's sinning. So there will be consequences. Why? Because God loves him. He's a child of God. Consequences of sinning. There's three things I want you to remember real quick about the consequences of sinning. Number one, we don't get to pick them. God does. We don't get to ignore them. God knows how to get our attention. And number three, they will usually hurt us and those we love. And God is willing to put us through pain to teach us. He's willing. Just like you're willing to spank your little kids. Brady needs a spanking every now and then, bro. Verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains. And his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zor. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Fear is a consequence. He didn't have to be afraid. He has no confidence in God right now. God just saved them from supernatural destruction. Wake up, dude. You don't have to be afraid. God loves you. But your sins have convinced you that that's not true. They have dulled the luster of Jesus' love. And that's what sin does. It helps us forget how much Jesus loves us. It dulls our taste buds. You know when you have some hot tea and it burns your tongue and then nothing tastes right for a week? That's what sin does to our hearts. Lot sowed doubt, so he reaps fear. You don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. Verse 31, Then now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us as the custom is of all the earth. So come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and laid with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, last night, I, or I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drunk with wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they went and made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and laid with him. And he did not know when she laid down or when she arose. Well, Lot's family is a big hot mess now. These are family consequences. And it's obvious that Lot's daughters were way more affected by living in Sodom than Lot thought they would be. Maybe Lot could be there. And maybe his righteous soul was vexed by the un righteous behavior of those people. But his daughters were all in. His daughters didn't have the moral fortitude that maybe Lot did at that time. 
And his daughters, in their heart, thought there was nothing wrong with that world. Trusting in the Lord is nowhere on their radar. They are blind to the work of God around them. God just saved them, and God just judged the fire out of heaven. And they have no clue. And they still think living in sin, sinning, is the best way to tackle. Why? Because they observe their father. His suggestions, maybe. Lot (laughs) allowed Sodom to sow into his children. And now his family is reaping corruption. And Lot becomes involved in the most shameful act imaginable. The one he suggested to the people of Sodom. Remember, he offered up his daughters to the men of Sodom. Which is a completely horrific, terrible idea. And that was showing his desire to get things done in his flesh. He's a flesh farmer. He only has the resources he can come up with. It, and that was the best idea he had. God doesn't need our best ideas. He needs our obedience. And he will work out by the Spirit the situations that need to be taken care of. But Lot, in his flesh, he's just sowing seeds that were going to devastate his family later on. Because his daughters looked at his suggestion and said, well, maybe inappropriate sex is the way to get our problems taken care of. Because that's what my dad suggested. So that's what I'm going to do. Our flesh, we have to learn, can do nothing good. Our flesh can do nothing good. In Romans 7, 18, it says as much. It says, for I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Human efforts only produce death. It doesn't mean you can't, in your flesh, you can't see what's right. No, it's the how to perform that people can't figure out. Because there is no figuring it out. The flesh has no ability. The flesh has no resources. The flesh has no power to do what's right. When we let our flesh dictate what we do, it will never lead us to life. It will never accomplish spiritual things. How could it? It's flesh. It will never be good. But I give God my best, you say. If my best isn't good enough for God, I don't know what else to give him. Well, the Bible says your best isn't good enough for God. It's only by the Spirit that we can please God. Who was more skilled, Abraham or Lot? I don't know. I don't care. Who's more skilled, me Or you. Doesn't matter. Because only the Spirit is what makes your life matter. I could be a thousand times more talented than you. But if I'm doing that in my flesh, it's it's wasted. It doesn't matter. Romans 8.8 says, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In case you thought I was lying. So contrast this simple abiding relationship we see with Abraham with Lot. Abraham, he just stays near to God. And what do you know? His life is not dominated by sin. He doesn't have all these consequences of the flesh that Lot is living with right now. 
he, he's going to have his own, and they'll be a little different and maybe not quite so severe. But in general, his life is blessed. Because in Romans 6.14, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Abraham and Lot are both believers, but Lot is living according to the law, and Abraham is living according to grace. Abraham's life is a picture of just hanging out with Jesus. Lot's life is a picture of trying to figure out how to save the world and do stuff. And grace is what has freed Abraham's life from the domination of sin. So we see now in verse 36, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn, the first bore a son and called his name Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And as we go through the Bible, we are going to see the Moabites and the Ammonites are horrible, terrible enemies to the people of God for hundreds of years. This is going to go on for a long time. These are the, the offspring of the flesh. This is the best the flesh can accomplish. This is the fruit that we can bear in our efforts. Well, what should be their, what is their attitude? Well, let's, let's see real quick. I'm going to read you a verse that shows the attitude of these people towards God and the things of God and God's people. In Psalm 83, it tells us in verse 4, it says, they, they have said, come, let us cry, excuse me, cut them off from being a nation that they, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And it's talking about the people of Moab right here. And he's saying they are an enemy of God and they want God to not be remembered and they want God's people to not be remembered. And then verse 8, it says, Assyria also has joined with them and they have helped the children of Lot. It says right there in the Psalms, the children of Lot are perpetual enemies of the things of God and the people of God. Lot's children don't want anything about God to be remembered. They, they want the glory for themselves and the flesh does not want God to receive any glory. God will not share his glory, though. And that's why the flesh and God are enemies. When we Here's a simple test of if you're doing something in the flesh. Because two people might do the exact same thing. One person's doing this thing, and, and, and maybe they're both helping an old lady across the street. And one person's doing it in the flesh, and one person's doing it in the spirit. How do you tell? Where's the glory going? Where is the glory going? Is the glory, does that person in their heart feel any twinge of Look how good I just performed. Look at the good thing I just did. That's flesh. If it's by the Spirit, it's Jesus. Thank you for changing my heart because I wanted to run her over. And now my heart has changed. I'm different. And Jesus, all glory to you. And I don't want any rewards. I just want to please you, Jesus. That's the difference. How should we treat the efforts of our flesh, the fruits of our flesh, when we feel that desire of our flesh to be dependent on our abilities, our efforts? How should we treat that? Well, I got a really interesting message for you. From Nehemiah chapter 13, we have Nehemiah, and he actually has to deal with these Moabites. And he teaches us how to treat them. One day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of the God. Well, there's a whole sermon right there, but I'll let you figure that out for yourself. 
because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the cursing into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from them. So the first thing Nehemiah recognized, he recognizes this problem that they're, they're compromising, they're mixing with these efforts of the flesh, and so he separates them. He separates, and that's what we need to do in our lives. When we see our, us, our lives and we see what we're doing, we need to recognize when we're doing it by our flesh and when we're doing it by the Spirit. And here's an easy way to do it. Who's getting the glory? Secondly, did I pray about it? Did I seek God's Spirit in it? Because if I didn't, I'm surely doing it by the flesh. I'm surely doing it. And maybe for you, the Spirit is only involved in your life on Sundays. And maybe during the week, all the time, you've just grown accustomed to doing your job out of your efforts of your flesh. And maybe there's been consequences in your work because of that, because God is trying to teach you and trying to draw you to always be filled with the Spirit. Nehemiah, he recognizes this problem, and he separates them. He said, nope, that's flesh, and this is Spirit. Two different things. And I'm not going to be a part of that. He renounces his connection with it. Just like we have to do. We have to renounce our dependency on our flesh. Because our flesh will come and say, oh, this morning you got it. You're good. Just take it easy this morning. You're going to be a good husband today. And we're tempted to go into the battle that day without Jesus. Well, go on a little bit later in this chapter, and Nehemiah gets a little crazy. He says in verse 23, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some on, I struck some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for, son, for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet many among the nations, uh, of all the nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him, even him, to sin. Should we therefore then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Verse 28, and that one of the sons of of uh, Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him out from me. In this, we learn how to treat our dependency on the flesh, which really is nothing more than a seductive woman trying to drag you away from Jesus Christ. Paul said, I desire for you to be betrothed to Jesus like a pure virgin. What do you think that means? It means he demands our whole heart. And what's the biggest thing that gets in the way of that is us. Our own idea that we have the ability to seek God, to please God on our own. Through our attempts, our performancism, our, our how we're doing according to the law of keeping these rules and keeping those rules. 
And it breaks God's heart. Why? Because it's dividing your heart's attention away from just what Jesus did on the cross. Are you saying all I should do is look at Jesus on the cross every day? Yes, that's the simplicity of the gospel. That is only what Jesus does every day. And that's where a lot God is so messed up. Is that he, he just thought that it was Jesus and something else. Yeah, I, I, I trust that God's my savior, but, but look, I need to go over here and I need to get involved in this. And I kind of like that and all these things. And it broke God's heart. And what he should have done was drive those things from him, pull out their hair, beat them up, curse them, he says. He says, cuss at your dependency to your flesh. Nehemiah was all about it. He knew how to depend on God and God alone, to live by grace. And that is, it is not my flesh. I know we've gone long today. I know we've gone long. We need to contend with our flesh. Argue with ourselves. Am I depending on my flesh right now? Well, then I'm going to stop. But I really want to. But I'm going to stop. I'm going to trust in only Jesus. Yes, argue with yourself. The Bible says we have to do that. Curse it. Say, I will not depend on my flesh. Strike it. Pull out its hair. If you see any remnant of it, drive it from you. This is war. We cannot tackle our day and our efforts. We can't just go to our job and get through it. We must drive that prideful and evil self-dependency from us with all violence. All violence is allowed when, when battling your flesh. Men like that. Huh? Sometimes my flesh doesn't like getting up early or staying up late. Doesn't like doing the dishes. Doesn't like reacting in peace. But my flesh likes being served. It likes getting the easy way. It does not like seeking the Lord's glory and honor. Sometimes my flesh likes giving its best effort, but neither of these please God. They do not enter into the rest that God has provided through us through Jesus and his work on the cross. It's God or our flesh. And God is not going to make peace treaty with his enemy, your flesh. We put our flesh to death daily by abiding in Jesus, in humility and faith, saying, I need your word and I trust your word, spending that time like Abraham does. But also, you know, my flesh, he likes to try its best to perform God's laws, and this is called performancism. And it's just as much an enemy of God's grace as lawlessness is. Because performancism doesn't need Jesus on the cross. I do. My heart does. My soul does. My soul feasts upon what Jesus did on the cross. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to come take communion. We're going to allow our souls to feast upon what Jesus did on the cross.